Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Market Lens and Look Through Podcast. I am your host, Damian Sassauer, and today... We are joined by Mr. Alejandro Cuadrado, Global Head of FX Strategy and Head of Latin America Strategy at BBVA. Alejandro, a real privilege to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Damien. Fabulous. Well, listen, there is no shortage of things to talk about in the Latin America region. And, I mean, I don't know about you, but we just have to start with Argentina. I mean, these midterm elections over the weekend, I mean, the Peronist bloc losing six of eight Senate races and investors appear to be cheering the defeat by driving up bond prices. So, you know, for me, you know, Fernandez, I mean, do you believe that he's going to try and preserve his coalition um, maybe by um, in the near term, at least putting through some more populist policies or is he going to find religion, perhaps, and start to, you know, engage with the IMF in a more constructive manner? I mean, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on all of that and the implications, obviously, for local and hard currency bondholders. Yeah, never, uh, never a dull moment in Latin America, never a dull moment in, in Argentina. Look, the best news is that the elections are behind us and we can refocus on the economy, on the cycle and the policy measures to move forward. We, we can discuss why is it that in Argentina, particularly, we are over and over again in an election cycle that conditions the whole agenda. That's every other year, but probably we don't have time in, in this podcast. That, so let's, let's really focus. <laughs> uh, President Fernandez is, is supposed to come out with an economic plan in a, in a few weeks. That's also a novelty. Uh, so let's see what's proposed <laughs> in there. The, uh, the exchange rate, has been squeaking for a while and the situation is not sustainable so we're likely to see some changes there too my view is that they may try to accelerate the pace of uh, depreciation in coming days uh, to ease some of the pressures and also as we enter a period of the year with the lower dollar inflows from the agriculture uh, until it kicks in, in in march at least and we also face significant payments main, mainly to the imf so that's what actually generates incentives to reach an agreement by March when we have Paris Club and IMF maturities. Uh, we are then focusing uh, the, the agenda in coming weeks. There was nothing really done, and, and we still have to set dates for IMF visits. There's going to be a lot of headlines still in the next few uh, days and, and, and weeks over this. Uh, in terms of bonds, the dollar bond market had corrected and was back to the floor from like the second quarter of the year uh, not a whole lot of movement we are expecting really in there it's likely to remain range bound and performance to be driven by of like ongoing headlines in what it looks like potential binomial outcomes right so well, if if we if you're getting the the, the news that uh, that uh, Argentina is approaching the IMF, that it's welcoming the visit, that it's making the payments, we're likely to see a bit more momentum in those bonds going up. But there's really uh, quite a high level of uncertainty and uncertain outcome for it to move to a much uh, different level. Valuations are attractive from here. We basically 
again kind of back at the bottom where we where we went uh, in in peak pandemic and 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 after the the restructuring um, so the thing is some people we've seen also a market that is has gained in liquidity over the past few weeks and months and we've seen also people quick to take profits whenever the the bonds kind of moved or ticked a bit higher i guess the the, the conclusion there is that there's not a whole lot of um, uh, of conviction that argentina will actually uh, move into this uh, more orthodox policy making and and easily agreed it's definitely not an, uh, an easy process politically and uh, and economically and it does uh, imply potential uh, painful moments in in coming weeks sure for uh, for that so um, I think we're gonna be still seeing quite a bit of ups and downs interesting interesting I mean you're absolutely right I mean valuations I mean we we come into this year thinking that Argentina might be the contrarian bull call of the year and here we are back where we started right but look you know I take your point you know the the maturities are coming due, right? I mean, I think the number that I have in front of me is something on the order of fifty-four billion owed to the IMF through twenty twenty-four. So it's 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 not an insignificant amount of money. And so, look, I I take your point on all of that. Let's let's shift gears a bit. Let's look at Mexico. I mean, look, the news that you know um, you know that the sovereign's really going to serve as a more dare I say, explicit backstop for the obligations of national oil company Pemex have caught quite a bit of headlines. And, you know, for practitioners, you know, writ large, you know, it's that Pemex Mex spread to sovereign, you know, that really, you know, has kind of not worked out, you know, I guess is really the way of putting it. A lot of investors, you know, thought we'd see that convergence. It is yet to converge. You look at Petrobras, you know, Brazil, it's right on top of each other. And so, what are your thoughts here? I mean, you know, what do you think in terms of, you know, not only, you know, fundamentally where Mexico is and whether or not this move was, you know, something that that, that makes sense to you as an investor, but more importantly, you know, what does this mean going forward? What does this mean going forward for the country and for Pemex? So AMLA's government assurance that it will continue to support Pemex and, and provide the required financial assistance should be a relief for, for holders of the state-owned oil company. Uh, especially for those that own the front-dated bonds up to the end of uh, AMLO's administration, at least. Uh, so, in general, we, we believe there is room for spread compression between MEX bonds and, uh, and PEMEX. But given that there is no outright guarantee, which is something that has been discussed since the beginning, right? And, uh, and I think that this, is, uh, this has been something on every other conversation about PEMEX and, and Mexico that we have had for for quite a few years. Um, AMLO is someone that was putting Pemex at the, uh, at the front and middle of the Mexican economy, that was considered the, the, the gem of, uh, uh, of the crown and, uh, and was going to back Pemex uh, regardless. Now, one, that's one thing. The other thing is the official guarantee on those ones. So the, the lack of that, uh, is still going to maintain some spread between the government, the government and the um, and the sovereign, right? It, also, if operational issues improve, uh, I think that can help compress that uh, spread even even more. And given that it's one of the highest among the, the Latin quasi sovereigns and, and sovereign bond curve, uh, I think it generally opens from a valuation perspective again. Uh, kind of a, a window of opportunity. I think it's something that 
Uh, it's a theme that has been revisited over the last two to three years. Some people have been holding on to that. Some people are, are playing the spread, uh, but it's generally something that we feel fairly comfortable with. Even if we saw um, oil prices uh, move, and, and these days we're testing a bit of the movement lower, uh, but it's definitely something that is not that correlated to, to that move in oil prices. Amazing. Fascinating. Well, I mean, you know, we can't talk LATAM without really shifting to to Brazil, right? I mean, Brazil's obviously been hiking rates at a pace that is, you know, unprecedented in many respects across the whole of emerging markets. And so, you know, the economy, while from our perspective, appears to be running at pre-pandemic levels, you know, a sharp deterioration in financial conditions on the ground could certainly derail the, the recovery. And look, by our estimate, 60% of Brazil's population is now nearly 60% fully vaccinated, allowing, you know, many local governments to begin lifting restrictions. And, you know, I guess from my perspective, what are you looking for from Brazil? And certainly, you know, how much in terms of, you know, potential tightening lies in store? You know, what is the BCB doing? What is it prepared to do? And how far do you believe it's willing to go? There is a lot going on in Brazil. Um, <laughs> that's uh, trying to, to, and a lot happening at the same time. There's, there's political noise, mixed political battles in, in Congress and outside. There's fiscal dominance and a market that is very touchy-feely, very sensitive, uh, and that can go easily wild and and it's one of the markets that definitely moves the most with every other headline um it did went it did go quite a bit wild in the in the last couple of months and we think it's partly exaggerated uh, fiscal concerns have been on the table for the last year and a half and or, or for, for the longest time but but yeah throughout the pandemic right um and uh, will remain into and out of the the elections. There are some slippages, but nothing very different from what we were coming from. So yes, uh, it's uh, it's concerning, but it doesn't feel that different to what we what we had before. Um, so some people have been suggesting that we could be entering actually on a spiral of uh, of fiscal spending of higher yields of then the BCB having to come and put that fire off through more hikes, uh, that, those hikes dampening expectations for growth for, for 2022 and that generating incentives for yet new fiscal stimulus. And we continue into that kind of uh, virtuous cycle. I think it's a bit exaggerated, but we are seeing and, and we're probably going to see again those dynamics repeat and, and, and explode and exaggerate some of uh, some of the movements. I think a key, uh, a key thing, uh, a key theme is when does inflation actually turn around, which is a global phenomenon, right? We could ask the same question in the U.S. Uh, and of course, in in every other country in Latin America, that has been seeing inflation going up and pressuring all those central banks. Actually, we put out um, some some research report a couple of weeks ago where we were looking at some of the factors driving inflation up in, uh, in Latin America, how food prices, how energy prices, how some of those base effects. And one of our conclusions was that actually Brazil could be one of the leading um, in terms of the potential turnaround or deceleration in inflation. And that's the first element that's going to maybe provide some relief and some, some relief for the, for the BCB. In the meantime, I think I mean, they've already been 
forced by the market or cornered by the market to accelerate the pace of hikes. They've been delivering quite heavily. Uh, they've already committed to another 150 basis points in December, probably another 150 basis points attached to that. But once we turn the year, um, and if we see some deceleration, then maybe they will be able to, to get that foot off the pedal. So we're looking at uh, end rates closer to 12 rather than 11, um, which definitely puts the economy in a complicated position for 2022, recessionary winds uh, flowing in, and that's going to be damaging for, for, for politics, and that's going to definitely tempt some politicians to, uh, to ramp up the, the fiscal spending. Um, so again, I think it's going to be, uh, and that type of environment is going to be hard for global investors to, to be attractive. I think that the, the elections next year just put a big question mark uh, on Brazil and at least, until at least we get reassurance from different candidates that there's going to be uh, plans of eventual fiscal stabilization. Since that doesn't really win elections, then we're probably going to see volatility and, and very limited rallies or limited exposure from investors to, to Brazil, I think, as a theme of 2022. Wow, interesting. I mean, a terminal sell-up rate of 12%. Yeah, no, I mean, I can see that happening for sure. I, I think, you know, you mentioned the U.S. and, you know, let's just tear up the script here. I mean, let's talk treasuries, U.S. treasuries. I mean, what are your thoughts, you know, on the coming taper? We all know that the correlation between, you know, U.S. yields and yields across, you know, the broader emerging market landscape are pretty tightly correlated, right? And so, you know, what are your thoughts on the coming taper? I mean, what is, you know, what do you see as the risk facing EM and by function of that Latin American creditors if the Fed were to accelerate its timeline? Right. So, yeah, uh, yields and, and treasuries and the dollar are a dominating force, and especially for, for the LATAM region overall, which is uh, purely funded in, in dollars, right? So this is a, a key driver. If you get that one right, you're probably going to get uh, a lot of things right in the, in the region. Now, specifically on, on tapering, um, our view has been that this time around, this tapering 2.0, if you want, because we only have one other experience, which was extremely traumatic. Yes. And some people still showing the scars from what followed from that tapering process, which was the tantrum. But in Latin America, it was hardly, hardly felt. We had one year following the tapering uh, tantrum of outflows in the region. So no wonder that people were quite skeptical about this process and have not really dipped their toes a lot in the in the region. I think that, that, that that's one big defensive starting point that makes a difference and that is different today than what happened in 2013. Then we can point out that the other differences, uh, the Fed having learned from the past, even though you know, it doesn't really focus on Latin American reaction, but overall they don't want the volatility in, in yields that we had last time around, uh, that the Fed has actually a different mandate and it's more dovish than what it was uh, back, uh, back then, that we already have that experience. So for those many reasons, we were looking for that to be different and even provide the window of opportunity that we think that can, can come closer towards the, the end of this year and into early next, which are also seasonally months more prone for, for better inflows into emerging markets and uh, Latin America to actually provide a window of opportunity for buying our, our markets once we prove that there is no tantrum. Uh, I think we are on, still on trial. 
in this uh, this week has been complicated uh, and, and we're still testing those waters the dollar has reached new uh, new highs or new yearly highs at least uh, so we're still in, uh, in in testing territory once I think we can move on once we start seeing range trading uh, once we don't see risk appetite tank that much I think that can we can actually uh, find some relief we have seen Global accounts, uh, crossovers, sniffing some of the markets, asking around some of the Latam, uh, maybe some of the even some of the smaller credits. So I feel there's uh, there's some hope that in the next two to three months we we see some counter kind of tapering movement. It's still not great news when we model um, uh, flows for 2022. Lower liquidity does push for potentially outflows uh, out of the region. Lower growth does too. Uh, fiscal constraint out of the U.S. is going to drive uh, that potential compression too. So it's not great. I think we're going to be operating more in, in windows of, uh, of opportunity and still having to have active management of portfolios rather than it being uh, fully, uh, fully directional. But at least I would come just be happy with it with the fact that this will not be as as traumatic as as it was just eight years ago right exactly uh trying to avoid that taper tantrum so you know you mentioned the dollar i mean we have to talk currencies for a minute i mean look you know from my perspective when i used to think of you know latin america and a lot of the latam crosses you know you used to think of commodities you think of chile and peru right. and the relationship with copper prices you think of colombia you used to think of oil prices so on and so forth and you know if you just look at commodity versus call it commodity currency correlations and i'm talking not just em i'm talking aussie dollar noki i'm talking the ruble the rand you know the relationships between commodity prices and spot currency movement has really declined quite considerably uh, over the past 10 years and so my question for you is you know is this entirely due to the dollar effect and you know what are your thoughts in terms of what's going to really drive latin american currencies Going forward, is it simply going to be a, you know, hey, it's a risk on, risk off vis-a-vis the dollar trade? Or are there opportunities to perhaps play intra-LATAM or intra-EM in terms of relative value between different pairs within, you know, the asset class? And, and how would you go about doing that? How do you think about LATAM FX? So one big factor, I think, that has changed the nature of some of these currencies and that correlation to commodities is financial integration. So this, in some cases, used to be um, small markets, small countries with small FX markets that we were dominated by that flow of, of import-export and, and that uh, copper or oil uh, flow. As we have moved on and these uh, countries have been uh, also growing debt, growing uh, the size of uh, foreign investors in their local markets, whether equities or uh, fixed income, like Colombia, for example, the, the, the presence of offshore investors has grown exponentially. That makes your currency a lot more uh, vulnerable, if you want, uh, that, that beta to, to global trend and the dollar much, much higher. And that's something that is, uh, that is quite obvious and that is there. The nature of, for example, the Colombian peso has fully changed from what it was five, ten years ago to, to what it is today. It's a high beta currency with some asymmetries, uh, but there the correlation with oil is much, much lower today. Um, from the 
other copper currencies, the Chilean peso, even Peru, uh, that's uh, similar. And it will continue to, uh, to change. In, the, in, in Chile, we're experiencing a structural change where fiscal spending is going to grow, local debt is going to grow, and the offshore participation is going to increase or have to increase. So uh, the, the nature of that currency is probably going to change too, and that's going to imply higher volatility. We've seen some other currencies also change in nature. Uh, one dramatic change that, uh, that we are uh, looking at is uh, the Brazilian real. Uh, this is still a, a, an ongoing research <laughs> that we are making because data is not really um, that, uh, that uh, it's quite recent in the sense that our, our view is that the BRL that used to be a carry currency that you would actually believe that a currency, a central bank that is going to maybe hike interest rates, it's actually already pricing 13% interest rates, that carry and, uh, and that interest rate would have a big impact on the currency, yet, you know, doesn't really move that much when the central bank alters its uh, hiking pace or decides to accelerate those. Um, one big reason, I think, is the nature of the investors that have also changed quite dramatically in Brazil. In Brazil, there was an exodus of uh, investors in the, in the local fixed income market, 2015, 2016, with the fiscal crisis there that never really came back. And the market that has been increasing in Brazil has actually been equities from an international perspective. Yes. Um, ETFs, retail, we have all been seeing how that was growing and more accessible to, uh, to global funds. And actually, if you look now, there's a much, much higher correlation, for example, with it, from the BRL perspective to, uh, to the Bovespa than there is to fixed income movements or movements along the, along the curve or the reaction by, uh, by the central bank, for example. And once you put those two together, at least from a fundamental perspective, then higher interest rates and inflation creeping higher and interest rates creeping higher and becoming restrictive, this tightening policy that might push Brazil into a recessionary trend 2022, well, that's going to hurt equity valuations. And not surprisingly, equities are actually down in Brazil more than in every other country in the world this year. And that's a big pressure for, for the BRL. So FX is, is a changing world. That's point number one and has been an evolving position. The other thing that we have highlighted and, and maybe not, not enough in the last year or so is that one big thing that this crisis brought um, was the fact that maybe for the first time, especially in Latin America, the um, central banks were putting currencies at, uh, at the center point of the adjustment, meaning that uh, you used to have, you know, in, in many cases or in previous crises, sometimes central banks that just chased their currencies and increased interest rates and they became you know, pro-cyclical, and then their, their recessions were bigger, but they tried to control the currency. This time around, what happened last year was, look, this is a global crisis, a global shock. We're going to let the currencies do their job, and we're going to cut interest rates aggressively, so to record lows in Chile, in Peru, in Brazil, in Colombia, and we will let the currencies adjust. And that's what they did. Uh, now, that means you're going to have a massive increase in volatility in exchange rates are going to suffer from the start. And even though most of these countries are now hiking, 
you're very far from levels where the investor is actually compensated from that exposure. You still have massive uh, volatility of movement in currencies that are uh, not just uh, compensated by the increase in interest rates that you're getting from the central banks. So currencies are still going to be the weak link in, uh, in these markets. I think that we're still going to see them suffering. Carry is not there. As long as volatility kicks in, carry gets completely out of the picture. So it's a, it's a much more, I would say, financially globally integrated, but a much more treacherous uh, market than, than what it used to be. It was maybe a, an easier play on, on a specific commodity. Certainly, this is very far from it. Interesting. Interesting. Now, you know, it's it's funny. You mentioned the Colombian peso. And, you know, f- from my thoughts, you know, uh, Colombia was late to move, certainly in terms of, um, you know, raising rates. And so, you know, you look at that strong third quarter GDP print. I mean, a really solid snapback after, you know, the protests. And I think it was the fourth iteration of the virus, which really hurt 2Q output. I mean, my question for you is just focusing on Colombia here. Do you believe activity can continue rising as the central bank pumps the brakes? I mean, and certainly off the back of that, you know, how much tightening can we expect out of Colombia? Is that something that is just starting or, you know, is it something that is going to, you know, be with us for some time? Right. So actually picking up from from where we just left it from the question before, uh, interest rates were at record low. So they started to... Uh, increase interest rates and they accelerated the pace of, uh, of hikes, but we are still in expansionary territory. Sure. Um, the idea is that they're going to continue hiking into a level maybe now slightly above neutrality that's going to be towards the 475 percent yeah. by mid next year. Uh, some supposedly neutrality is four to four and a half percent. So um, there's definitely an upward bias on our on our forecast and, uh, and the good news or, or the strong uh, GDP print that we have had, I think, pushes us into um, into that direction. But we also believe that uh, it's possible to see some overshoot in inflation compared to some of the current uh, forecasts that actually the, the bank manages. It's uh, the, the current forecasts are 4.9 and 3.6 for for this year and, and next, respectively, and uh, these are potentially more uh, markets that even they're going to benefit from in positive surprises. We had one in October, and it's likely to repeat this uh, interesting thing of a VAT uh, free day, which uh, moves prices down, and it's going to happen again in November and in December, but, but not in January. So we're likely to see one of those countries that may see more inflation surprises into the beginning of uh, of next year. There's also a lagging adjustment in core inflation compared to some of the Latin peers. Interesting. Uh, as you said, the, the strong economic recovery, and then there is some uh, inflation inertia and some of the uh, catch-up to uh, to do from the low print that we're going to have this, uh, this quarter. So... Uh, there might be eventually actually more more pressure starting next year for potentially even acceleration of the pace of, of hiking. I think that they're going to keep the 50s going. We don't have a meeting this month. They will probably uh, deliver in, in December. And there's definitely going to be an interesting discussion in the first quarter next year. 
So basically, no one's receiving in the front end of the cultist curve. Okay, very good. <laughs> no, I, um, I look, I mean, you know, we're, we're running short on time here, but I, I can't leave you without at least asking you, and, and for our listeners, you have to understand, you know, we're recording this on Friday. You know, the Chilean election is this weekend, and clearly we can't ignore it, right? Recent polls suggest perhaps we're going to move to a December 19th runoff between Boric and Cast. Although I've heard several varying opinions, I'm curious if you could just walk us through, through our, you know, what are you thinking there? You know, how should investors be positioning in Chile, uh, you know, both into and, and quite frankly, you know, in lieu of the various different scenarios which might be presented for them after the elections? Okay, so uh, our base case is uh, actually for, to put it out there, uh, for Boric to win uh, the, the second round. Uh, there is a high level, to put the disclaimer on, uh, there is a high level of uncertainty. I mean, when you have 25% of undecided vote, that can give you almost any result yes. uh, into the second round. But if we go with uh, the base, which is what you said, Cast and, and Boric moving to the second round, and we believe that eventually Boric captures more of the center vote um, in the second round, and that would uh, be uh, ultimately, I think, uh, a challenge for, for markets. Definitely uh, likely to see curves uh, steepening further. I think that we have had a fair share of steepening in, in Chile anticipating that kind of scenario over the past few months. And maybe uh, moreover structurally because of what's happening in the background, which is a country that for years now, but delivering with a new constitution is asking just for more benefits and, uh, and more spending structurally. Um, and that means higher fiscal deficits, higher risk premia and, uh, and steeper curves. So I think that they, the, the play from a curve's perspective is uh, more straightforward. If we had the surprise of, of cast, and he may actually end up leading the, the vote in, in round one, um, that would pull in the opposite direction, right, for flattening in, uh, in the curve from the, uh, from the longer end of the, of the curve. Um, his spending plans are definitely a lot more moderate. The thing with Cass is that he actually has uh, huge ambitions of cuts in revenues, lowering taxes. Uh, that might not be as possible to do, but in general, I think that the market would see him as a lot more potentially uh, fiscal prudent. So the, the, um, the moving curves is much more straightforward. I think one major complication comes from the peso perspective. Uh, you know, market uh, moving from a, a left or a right-wing candidate is kind of easy to, to, see, to, to see or anticipate the, uh, the reaction. However, I would say at this point, above 800 and into 830 for, to the peso, there's, there's quite of a, uh, of a premium price in the peso. I think if Boric came up with some uh, maybe more orthodox approach or a technocrat in terms of uh, appointments in the Ministry of Finance that could cool some of the pressure down, especially on the peso. On the other end, um, if you see cast, is uh, likely to bring political noise to uh, with potential for protests, potential for uh, governability issues, and that is typically going to always be reflected in, in currencies, right, and, and currency markets. I'm going to pressure the peso again. So if you see the peso rallying uh, because of uh, potential cash victory, I would say 
to maybe lock some of those uh, levels in because we're still going to see that swing potentially into uh, into 2022. Alejandro, thank you. Thank you so very much for sharing your thoughts and your views with us here today. And thank you to our audience of ever-enduring, always-committed, emerging market enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward. Thanks so much. Take care.